Okay, welcome to HealthSpan Podcast. On this episode, I'm going to be talking about part one of Dr. Sajjan Panda's The Circadian Code. And he kind of starts out this book with the idea that we're all shift workers. Now, he doesn't mean this in the literal sense that we're all working from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m., but he has this idea that our circadian biology is not always going to be perfect. For example, some of us travel and know the feeling of jet lag. Some of us have something called social jet lag, where you sleep in two hours later than you would on the weekends. And there's also uh, certain jobs in the economy where you have flexible hours and can work at night, for example, like ride sharing or food delivery services. And there's also shift work lifestyle, which which he has examples of uh, new mothers or in-home caregivers or performing artists. Now, why is it bad that we are all shift workers? Well, he states in the book that, quote, it has been well documented that shift workers experience more health problems than non-shift workers, particularly, particularly gastrointestinal disease, obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. And he goes on to pro- provide this example about firefighters and how the leading cause of death in firefighters is not actually, fi- is not actually fires or accidents, it's from heart disease. Now, this isn't the best example because the leading cause of death in both men and women is heart disease, but he's still trying to prove the point that uh, disruption in circadian biology can indeed affect our health. Okay, and a little bit later, he talks about how the circadian rhythms are a real thing, and a lot of these people kind of neglected the idea of circadian biology for a long time, and it wasn't really until the mid-1970s 1970s, when people started taking this seriously. And I can kind of attest to this too, because when I was an undergraduate at UC San Diego, we had a class called Circadian Rhythms offered to us as an elective. And at that time, I thought this was kind of dumb, and uh, I don't understand how you can make a full course just out of circadian biology. And then come to realize that, that the circadian rhythm, circadian biology is so important to all of our lives. And uh, now I have a lot more interest in this field, so I wish I would have taken that class. Uh, but anyways... Uh, he talks about this experiment that simply demonstrates the circadian rhythm. So he says, take a plant, for example. A plant is placed in a dark basement, and it will still move its leaves up and down in a particular rhythm each day. Many plants move their leaves up during the day to capture more energy from sunlight. At night, their leaves can drop because it would waste energy to keep their leaves raised. Similarly, many flowers only bloom during the day when pollinating bees and birds are flying around, yet some, like the jasmine tree near my grandfather's house, bloom at night. So that's a plant experiment, but how about humans' experiments? How is, is there an experiment where we can test our own circadian biology? And back in the 1950s, there was an experiment done where some volunteer went to a cave far in the Andes Mountain, and he, went, he was in complete darkness this whole time. And he would have this friend outside who he would talk to on the phone, and this guy in, in the cave, he didn't know what time it was at all, but he would still go to bed around the same time and wake up around the same time. So there's a little uh, example where er, you know, earlier in the 1950s that circadian biology actually existed. And he also explains that our circadian rhythm is not actually 24 hours. So in reality, our circadian rhythm is more like 24 hours and 15 minutes. So it's actually a little bit longer than uh, 24 hours. So why is it important to have a good circadian rhythm? Well, he states that circadian rhythms optimize biological functions. 
So this is a very broad statement, but uh, to, to make it even uh, more simpler that if we have a good circadian rhythm, we're going to be a lot more healthy. Uh, we're going to live a lot longer and we're going to feel a lot more better. And uh, every function in the body has a specific time because the body cannot accomplish all it needs to do at once. So we have so many proteins in our body, we have so many genes, we have so many things going on in our body. And it wouldn't be advantageous to have all these systems going on at once. So while some parts are being repaired, uh, other parts may be building up, uh, for example. So what I'm saying is it's advantageous to have certain times that certain things are on and certain times that other things are on. So that's just kind of why it's important to have this strong circadian rhythm. And a little bit later, we're going to talk about why uh, it's more important than you think it is. So he kind of goes into this brief history of circadian rhythm, and I'm not going to dive too much into it, um, but I recommend you buying the book and uh, reading more about it. Um, but I do want to talk about this interesting passage where he talks about blind people. So if blind people are blind and they can't see, can, can they still, do they still have a circadian clock? So we think that light is being uh, controlling our circadian rhythm. But blind people, because they're blind, do they still have a circadian rhythm? And he states that surprisingly, many blind people still sense light. So how is this possible that a blind person can sense light? So for a long time, people thought that blind people, they don't have these uh, rods and cones that are working. And it's true, they, they don't have these working rods and cones. But then after certain experiments, there's a certain um, light sensor that no nobody knew about so his his work and uh, along with uh, other researchers they they essentially found this light sensing protein and it's called melanopsin and we all have melanopsin and melanopsin is the protein that is necessary for these blind people to see or, or not not see but sense light so melanopsin is like he states is this light sensing pro protein and of the 100,000 retinal neural cells that transfer all light information to the brain only 5,000 contain melanopsin so we don't have a lot, a lot of it but why, why, why is this important to us not just blind people well melanopsin is activated by registering blue light it sends a signal to the brain that any light is present and the brain responds by thinking it is daytime regardless of what time it really is so your brain thinks that it's daytime and that you should be awake if you have an overhead light, let's say at nighttime when you shouldn't. And you're going out to the grocery store at night and you want a late night snack and you're trying to go to bed. But then you realize that um, you kind of realize that it's light, light out from these melanopsin receptors. So this comes into play when you're staring at your screen late, late at night. And uh, right, before, right before you go to bed, you want to watch that last episode. Well, this melanopsin is registering the blue light from your screens and causing a sleep-wake uh, sleep cycle disruption. So you can read more about this melanopsin protein. It's pretty interesting. Okay, moving on. Uh, chapter 2 on how circadian rhythm works. Uh, well, before I go to chapter 2, let me read the last... Or, second to last paragraph of chapter one he states that these discoveries helped us begin to understand how light affects health our modern lifestyle 
in which we spend most of our time indoors looking at bright screens and turn on bright lights at night, activates melanopsin at the wrong times of day and night, which then disrupt our circadian rhythm and reduces production of the sleep hormone melatonin. So this is exactly what I was saying earlier about how you shouldn't stare at your screen at night. Okay, now moving into chapter two, um, about the genetics of the circadian clock. So as scientists, whenever you're trying to research a protein or research a new gene, you do that with either mouse models or fruit flies. Those are the most common. And by comparing mutant genes with normal ones, you can learn a lot about how the genes work and some of the consequences of their abnormalities. So he talks about this cool experiment in 1971 done by Caltech professors with fruit flies. What these, what these professors did was they took thousands of fruit flies and studied them in isolation under constant darkness. So they noticed that young flies are usually active at dawn and dusk, and then they take a daytime siesta and then sleep at night. So that's what a normal fruit fly would do, fruit fly would do. but then he also noticed that there were some uh, mutant fruit flies that had an abnormal circadian clock. So this kind of brought them to the realization that there must be something controlling this clock. And he states that the same mutation also changed the timing of when fruit flies, fruit flies hatched, which suggested that fruit flies have only one clock. So these two Caltech professors, Benzer and uh, Konopka, they named this gene that con- controls our circadian biology, and they called it the period gene, period gene, or PER gene for short. And then this PER gene, he kind of explains that it's inside every single one of our cells and it sends instructions to our body to create proteins that will build up slowly and then break down every 24 hours. So this PER gene kind of helps regulate uh, our, our cycles. So we understand that our body has circadian biology, but how about every single one of our organs? Yes, every single one of our organs has its own clock. So scientists, he states that almost took it for granted that there was only one clock. But uh, more research from uh, PhD students and professors saw that fruit flies, when these fruit flies were, um, so this guy named Jeff uh, Platz is how you pronounce his name, I think. He took these fruit flies and fused their PER genes, the one I was just talking about, with glow-in-the-dark fluorescent tags. And what he did was, he was... uh, he fluorescently tagged the PER genes, and there was one day where this guy, Platz, he was cutting up live fruit flies and separating their bodies, like the wings, antennas, mouths, legs, abdomens, etc., uh, for a different experiment. So he chopped them up and kind of like separated them, and then he left. And then when he returned, he noticed that when he walked back into his lab, his dark laboratory room, he realized that all these separate body parts of the fruit fly, the antenna, the legs, the wings, they were all glowing in perfect rhythm. So even though this fruit fly's body was detached, detached, uh, all the organs were detached, they were still glowing in a synchronous pattern. So this kind of brought the idea that every single organ has its own uh, circadian rhythm. Now, to make things even more interesting, we've kind of realized that all our own cells have their own circadian rhythm. So not just our organs, 
but every single one of our cells has a circadian rhythm. So, for example, the nutrient or energy energy sensing pathway has its own circadian biology, energy metabolism, uh, cellular maintenance mechanisms, repair and cell division, circadian, cell communication is circadian, cell secretion is circadian, pretty much everything, all our cells are circadian. Now, where can this kind of be like a a real life, uh, a real life example, you could say, where this pertains to your life? Well, almost every single drug is, 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 drug target is circadian as well. So, why does this matter? Well, think about when you take your drugs. A lot of these times people say, you need to take your drug this time or this time. It's better absorbed at this time. So if we know when the drugs are better uh, metabolized, isn't that when we're supposed to take the drug? So what I'm trying to say is it's good to know when uh, you know the drugs are being metabolized better so they're more efficacious in your body. So moving on, there is a master clock in our body, and it's located in our hypothalamus in a specific nucleus. So the hypothalamus is kind of like this master regulator hormone, and it's in your brain, and it has different nuclei which have different functions. So the function that controls our sleep, sleep weight cycle, is the suprachiasmatic nucleus. So supra meaning above, uh, chiasmatic meaning above the optic chiasm it's an area in our brain and this scn this suprachiasmatic nucleus it's directly attached to our pineal gland as well as our pituitary glands and um, the scn he states is also indirectly connected to the pineal gland which produces the hormone sleep hormone melatonin so melatonin i'm sure you've heard of it before so that is scn the suprachiasmatic nucleus that is kind of the master regulator uh, in our bodies. Okay, and then moving on to core rhythms. So the clock in different organs works kind of like an orchestra, he says, to create three major forms, three, uh, three major rhythms that form the essential foundations of health. So he states that these three foundations of health are sleep, nutrition, and activity. So for sleep, he goes on to explain a story about this woman named Betty. So Betty was this normal woman, and she had a she had a kind of abnormal circadian rhythm. She would sleep about seven hours a day, which, you know, we all sleep about seven eight hours. But the thing was for Betty was that these hours would be from the set from the times of seven p.m. to two a.m. So these are very abnormal hours, and it was very debilitating for her because. Well, she wasn't able to have a social life and she wasn't able to spend time with her family. So Betty went in for a sleep study uh, at this University of Utah and they realized that this lady, Betty, they found a change in her PER gene. So the one I was talking about earlier, the same gene that had been altered in the fruit flies experiments. And then uh, a few years later, this doctor that was researching Betty they discovered another family who had a potentially different mutation in a gene called DEC2, which can reduce sleep need. So people with this mutation can only sleep for like about five hours, but they'd still feel completely rested and carry out their daily routine perfectly fine. So 
I bet these people are really lucky that they can only sleep five hours but still feel refreshed. Um, but I can guarantee you this mutation is very rare and you most likely don't have it, unfortunately. So moving forward, we talked about the sleep part and then the second core is the uh, rhythm two, which he calls it, is the food or nutrition. And he states, when you eat affects your clock. So believe it or not, it's more than just light that can affect our circadian rhythm. Our food as well can affect our circadian rhythm. So in 2009, Dr. Panda did an experiment where, again, he, looked, he was looking at mice. And he fed the mice. So he, say, he states, we took some mice, which are usually nocturnal, and we fed them only during the daytime. Then we looked at the liver function. We saw that almost every liver gene that turns on and off within 24 hours completely tracked the food and ignored the timing of the light exposure. That meant that this was the food that reset, reset the liver clock, not the brain. So essentially what he's saying is that we have more than just light that sets our circadian rhythm. And sometimes uh, food timing can be a powerful cue to override the master signal from the SCN master clock. So SCN master clock uh, can be overridden by other things like food. So I think that, I thought that was an interesting point. And I also want to talk about this idea of, uh, of uh, you know, food timing as well. So normally, let's say you have a dinner at 8 p.m. and you finish, you finish around 8 p.m. And when your body, when, when you learn about circadian biology, you kind of realize that everything starts shutting down later on in the day. So your stomach... All your intestines, they kind of put up this, the kitchen is closed sign, he states. Um, so the kitchen is closed. Um, we're going to start burning fat now. But if you have this late night snack, uh, again, you're activating your circadian rhythm. And you're staying, you're essentially, you know, your fat making process, he puts it, continues past midnight. And the fat burning process won't begin until morning. But then the next morning, you're eating breakfast. So... You're never really giving your body time to rest. So, long story short, stop eating so late. Okay, now finally for the rhythm three, activity. Uh, he, again, we're looking at mice, mice models. And he saw that mice that were allowed to exercise whenever they wanted, they had a more of a robust circadian rhythm. They slept better, slept better and also were more sleepy when they were supposed to be sleepy and were more awake when they were supposed to be awake. So again, exercise, good for circadian biology. Now, on the chapter three, the last chapter of part one, we're kind of uh, testing our own circadian biology. And he asks, how strong is your circadian biology? And we kind of go into the idea that we're really not as resilient as we thought. So you can go out one night and, you know, feel the bad effects, but it's really these chronic problems that tend to add up and make us more vulnerable to factors that can kill us. So we may, we may be getting away with just one night, two nights, um, but this kind of builds up over time. So we need to be careful about, you know, waking up at the same time, going to bed at the same time, cutting our meals uh, closer earlier in the day and he kind of has this 
graph where we see short-term circadian rhythm disruption, like one to seven days, can cause sleepiness, lack of focus, migraine, moodiness, etc. Then this becomes chronic, like weeks, months, or years. And then again, like one of the first things I said was uh, disruption in circadian biology can lead to a bunch of factors that have a poor effects on our health, like gut disease, immune disease, metabolic diseases, mood disorders, neurodegenerative disorders, uh, and even cancer. So that's why uh, we have to understand that our circadian biology is not really as resilient, or we're not as resilient as we think we are. Okay, so we kind of go into, again, testing your circadian biology. But before that, he kind of, uh, he kind of shows that some of our chronic diseases that we have can affect our circadian biology. So, so what I'm saying is this can go both ways. Our circadian biology can lead to disease, but some of our diseases can lead to disruptions in our circadian biology. So he uses the example of obstructive sleep apnea. So people who are obese, they often suffer from obstructive sleep apnea, where during the nighttime they partially stop breathing. And during the daytime, they'll feel tired and uh, they, they just don't feel like they have restorative sleep because they can't breathe as easily. So that's an example of how a disease can affect our circadian biology. So in the testing part, he has a few different sections and he kind of lets you do your own self-assessment. So it's a bunch of yes, no questions. So under physical health, for example, he has things like, has your doctor ever told you that you're overweight? Have you ever been diagnosed with prediabetes diabetes? And then the mental health, you probably have, he has yes, no questions of, do you feel anxious? Do you feel low or have frequent blue moods? Blue moods? Do you struggle with attention or focus? So he has a bunch of yes, no questions. And then in the behavioral habits, he's like, he asks, do you take less than 5,000 steps a day? Do you exercise after 9 p.m.? Do you spend more than an hour on a computer or your phone or watching TV before bedtime? So you kind of fill out these yes-no questions and you assess your response. And the chances are that a lot of these things uh, we do tend to do. We do tend to take less than 5,000 steps a day. We do tend to, you know, watch TV before we go to bed. So um, saying yes to a lot of these might give you an idea that you're your circadian rhythm, uh, it may not be ideal. Um, But then he kind of goes into goals and how you can work on this later in the book, which I will be talking about later. And uh, I just want to talk about this section that's called Your First Bite slash Sip of the Day. So he states, just like your first sight of light syncs your brain clock with light, the first bite of food signals the start of the day for the rest of the clocks in your body. And then he kind of goes into the question of uh, what really breaks your fast. So depending on who you talk to, uh, you'll get different answers about what actually breaks your fast. So does coffee break my fast? Does this cream I put in my coffee break my fast? Does, uh, you know, this juice break my fast? So uh, if you if you were to ask Dr. Sajin Panda, hey, what breaks my fast? He will tell you that anything you eat or drink besides water breaks your fast. So he says, what constitutes a true fast? The answer is whatever triggers the stomach, liver, muscles, brain, and rest of your body to think that the fast has been broken. 
And the answer is anything you eat or drink besides water. So he states, as soon as we put calories in our mouth, our stomachs begin to secrete gastric juice in anticipation of digesting food. So if, any, if anyone asks you what breaks a fast, the answer is anything except water. So I kind of go with that definition too. I take my fast very strictly. And anytime I'm fasting for 24, 48 hours, it's purely water. So again, we're looking at more assessing your responsing, assessing your response to these yes/no questions. And he kind of has this chart of of six six main questions, and he wants you to fill it out. And the questions are: What time did you wake up? Uh, what time did you go to sleep? What What time was your first bite? What time was your last bite? What time did you shut off all screens? And what time did you exercise? So those are kind of like the main six questions that. He wants you to wants you to know uh, about and kind of track, and then he puts this last paragraph that I wanted to talk about, where he kind of asks the question: Is this all we need? Is this all we have to do to fix our health? Like, forget about all the diets, the keto, the carnivore, the vegan. If we just fix our circadian rhythm. Is this all we have to do to, you know, get better health? And he says, yes, it is. Quote, yes, it is. And then he states that uh, there was no Chinese takeout in New York or bagels in India. And there was no correlated chronic disease to any particular type of cuisine, whether it was high in fat, carbs, or protein. But our ancestors all over the world had one thing in common. They ate less, did more physical activity, slept more, and completed their daily routines with clockwork precision because they did not have the luxury of light. Again, timing is everything. So he's really trying to emphasize the point of the importance of a circadian biology. We have a bunch of camps fighting over uh, this is the best diet, this is the best diet, uh, this is the kind of exercise you need to do. But when it boils down to it, if you can fix your circadian biology, you can fix your health. He just puts it that simply. And then towards the end of the part one, he has this chapter, he has this short paragraph about, you know, joining joining his team, where essentially he created this app. And if you just go to mycircadianclock.org, uh, you can sign up and participate. And this app kind of lets you check your own circadian biology. So he kind of ends, he kind of ends the, the part one with, you know, a, a pitch for his website. And a pitch for his app where you can uh, sync your own circadian biology. So that's essentially part one. He, he didn't dig too much into the science. He kind of just gives us a broad overview about circadian biology, the genetics of it, why it's important. And that's essentially part one of circadian rhythm, uh, the circadian code. And then uh, I'll be talking about part two, part three later. And I hope you enjoyed this.